Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by ACA President, Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the ACA podcast. I'm Anthony Coxon. It's only a little over a month now, and we'll have the ACA annual conference and AGM in Hobart. The ACA have always put on a great show for the conference, and this year is no exception, with a terrific lineup of speakers and a theme of positive aging. Now, if you didn't think that this topic was an important one, let me share with, share with you some statistics from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. In 2016, 15%, or around 3.7 million Australians, were over the age of 65. Looking back, in 1926, only 5% filled this age group, but by 1976, this had increased to 9%. Importantly, by 2056, the figure is expected to grow to a massive 22%, or 8.7 million Australians. So people are living longer and there's definitely going to be more of them. As practitioners, we need to be skilled in helping this demographic live productive, independent and healthy lives. And one of the biggest threats to the well-being of an older person is the risk of fall. It's my pleasure today to be speaking to one of the keynote speakers at this year's conference, Dr. Kim Delabere, PhD, who is an expert in this field. Just to give you a bit of Kim's background, She's a Principal Research Science at Neuroscience Research Australia and Associate Professor at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. She's supported by a National Health and Medical Research Council Career Development Fellowship since 2012. Her research has contributed to the understanding of physical, psychological and cognitive factors in falls, and we'll be discussing these uh, shortly. Her multidisciplinary approach incorporates elements from physiotherapy, psychology, brain imaging and software engineering towards preventing falls and promoting healthy ageing. Kim, welcome to the ACA podcast. Thanks, Anthony. I'm really, Great to be uh, here. really delighted uh, that you take the time to be a part of the podcast uh, today and I thought maybe what we would start uh, with is just if you could share with the ACA uh, listeners a little bit about your personal journey that's led you into uh, the area of studying uh, falls risk? Yeah, so as a child, I guess I spent a lot of time with my grandma and her two sisters, actually, so my two great aunts. And um, um, as a teenager and a young adult, I I kept visiting them um, as much as I could. And, um, you know, their influence and how they approached healthy aging and, and old age uh, has throughout their life and, and my life as well has really been a driving factor in, in my research direction. Um, you know, it's it's so common um, for people, um, to older people to fall, like many, many people fall, it's about one in three. Um, but what actually um, spiked my interest the most was psychological consequence um, of, of falls because that is, is the one thing that just kept coming back um, with you know my grandma and, and her two sisters is that um, if that they would worry uh, that they would fall when they're by themselves and they wouldn't be able to get up and 
um, that in itself just stopped them from doing the things that they enjoyed and then gradually um, uh, my one one of my great aunts has passed away now but so she 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 really didn't come outside of the house anymore um, and became quite lonely and so so those are the things that actually really sparked my interest um, and started uh, my research career um, in falls and I guess that's the thing, isn't it? It's not just the physical injury. The, the sequelae of these types of uh, accidents can have a huge effect on the independence of an older person. That's right. That's right. And so that, that just came back into my research as well. When I, so when I did my PhD back in Belgium, because that's where I'm, I'm from, um, so we we ask these questions to the to the people to our participants. Um, so we're um, about two hundred and sixty people over the age of sixty five, all living independently. Um, but even though the stats were there for just one in three people who were who had had a fall in the past year, when we asked about concern about falling, it was double. So, um, so that in itself was just very interesting because it seems that that concern, um, that overwhelming concern really in some people is more common than falls itself. So, we'll so that's, that's what I wanted to try and understand, yeah. So you sent through to me three uh, papers and, and I must say that I had a, a real joy reading them. They were very easy to read and just had some great information in it that I'm sure will be uh, spark the interest of a lot of chiropractors. But... Before we get into the onto that relationship between the, uh, I guess the physical um, vulnerability and uh, the the, um, the fear or perception of, of falling, let, let's talk about firstly what are some of the factors that increase the risk of falling. Yeah, so risk of falling is, is very much related to age-related changes, I guess. So, and I I often like to refer to it across um, the moving, thinking, feeling paradigm. Um, so, if if a person's balance is not that great anymore, their strength, their they have weakened muscles. Um, that will increase the person's risk of falling. And that's just, you know, physical parameters that um, make it harder for a person to walk on uneven surfaces um, or to to balance uh, during a, a slightly more challenging uh, task, such as uh, reaching up into your kitchen to, um, to grab a cup. Um, you know, so those are physical parameters that are absolutely crucial and they're um, they're, if, 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 if they're lacking uh, due to age-related changes because maybe of, of pain, it, could, it can be a sore knee or it can just be, you know, um, less, uh, being less active and becoming more frail. So that will affect a person's risk of falling. But that's if we just only consider the moving aspect um, it's it's a very simplified view, um, and over the over the last few years, um, more researchers all over the world have started to consider other aspects as well, um, and that is going across the thinking and the feeling um, domains. So with the thinking, um, what what is important really as and we do this all the time, you always think when you do something. So you're always dual tasking whatever activity that you 
you do um, physical activity if you go to the shop for example you might think oh goodness this, that milk that I've got how much is still in there should I get a new bottle um, or you know so those kind of things we always dual task or in, in an environment where it's busy you have to negotiate you know maybe a small child who's running across your path um, and you might have to inhibit your step so those are all cognitive processes that happen in our brain all the time. Um, and if the cognitive reserve is, is getting um, smaller and getting less due to agilization changes again, um, then it will become a lot harder to cope with these challenges. And that's when it happens and something uh, little might occur that you don't even realize it's actually posing a challenge on your brain and that might cause you to dip over and so there's many examples of that um you know like um if we ask our older people in the trial like why do you think you fell um many many people would say oh, i've got no idea there was really nothing for me to trip over but i just lost my balance right. and and that is often that is often what's happening then there's just you know a little shortcut at the time because there's too many things happening yes. in the brain and then the the third aspect is the feeling and that's really so that's where we were talking about just a little bit before um, with the fear of falling concern about falling but it's more than that so um also depressive symptoms um, depression is very common in old age and you know it's for reasons that are very understandable as well um, because of feeling a bit more socially isolated sometimes um, or because um, you know people have have passed away in their, in their family or you know like there's certain many many moments in their lives like in the old age that actually would um, cause sadness and um, so and depressive symptoms overall are very common and it's very underestimated um, as a as a as a mental health problem in older people. And but what we see is that it actually does affect fall risk. So this is something that we've been able to look at just with pure data. So where we actually saw uh, people who had depressive symptoms and people who didn't, and people who had depressive symptoms fell a lot more. Um, and it's still very hard to understand as to why that is, um, but it is, it's possible because people enter into this vicious circle of, you know, just not, um, not feeling happy in themselves and not going out and therefore um, getting more frail because they just don't get the activity. So that is one path, so where this is really negative spiral. But then another thought is something that has developed a lot more recently, and we've been actually been able to confirm that with some brain imaging studies, um, is that the, the depress depressive symptoms that a person has actually also adds a cognitive load um, on the, onto the brain um, and the concern about falling could do the same thing so if you if you're so overwhelmingly concerned about an activity while you're doing it um, that and, and the activity might in itself might also be a little bit challenging where you have to dual task and your balance is not that great if those three things then just come together it might it could be quite possible that you just fall 
due to something very little. So that, those are it's it's a big summary of of you know what is what causes falls. It's not straightforward. It's a big summary, but it's a very good summary. I think it's like you said, the the bit like the perfect storm. So I think um, traditionally practitioners have certainly understood the physiological side of things, so the moving aspect, but that thinking and feeling the. The cognitive and uh, you know depressed sort of side of things obviously plays a, a significant role, as you've explained uh, just there. In in one of your studies, the, the your 2010 uh, BMJ study, you talked about classifying um, older participants into the four groups that were dependent on their actual physiological falls risk and their perception of falls risk. Can you explain that a little further? Yeah, so, um, so this is, the, the, how this started was that, um, so in general when you think about um, yourself, um, if you would have to judge um, how good you are at playing golf, for example, um, then you would, you know, I actually haven't played golf very often, so I would say I'm, I don't think I'd be very good at it, um, and I'd probably be right. And, you know, while other things, like playing tennis, for example, I've done quite a bit, so I'd be better at it. And so I, I would be able to kind of plot my abilities, um, actual abilities against my self-perceived abilities, and then you would test me, and I would be more or less on the line, you know, it would be a linear relationship. Um, so and that that is kind of how we would assume it would be for for all the people as well. If you ask them how good is your balance, and they would say, "Yeah, oh, it's pretty good." If we would test it, that it would be right. But what we saw is that that is not the case. So when we when we look at the correlation of a person's um, actual balance abilities or actual fall risk, and we ask them how they feel about their fall risk, it. Uh, the, the dots of people are, are all over the place and the correlation is actually not that strong. So that is really what started it, is just finding that out with a simple statistical test um, and just this, this doesn't make sense and how what does this mean for all the people if they are falling off that line? So that is what we what we tried to do. So we did a very crude, simple classification where we just had four groups um, and we plotted people along um, along the axis of actual abilities and perceived abilities. And then so we had two groups that we thought, all right, so they, they're having it right. So they are the ones who are either figurous and, you know, like the real troopers. Um, they're aging very well, their fall risk is low, and they know it's low. Um, and then we've got the other the other end of the people who are a bit more frail and they, they recognize they have a high fall risk and they are cautious as a result of it and sensible in their behavior. So we kind of classify them as normal, as to be accepted. Um, and together, these people were about 70% of the population across that line. So about 30% of them fell off that line. Um, of which 10% were too anxious. So we could not find any physical reason for them to, to be fearful or to, to perceive their fall risk as very high. Um, and then we had 20% of the people who were the other way. So who, were, who had a high fall risk, uh, as we could measure, but they, they weren't too worried about it. Um, and um, so that's that's how we we looked at those at those people and we compare them to their counterpart without the concern about falling. 
And when we looked at the ones who were too anxious, we couldn't see anything. We couldn't see any difference, you know, that we not school. The only thing that we did find was that they were overall their their self-perception of, of their health was also a lot worse. So even though the medical number of medical conditions was the same, but they perceived it as worse. And the biggest difference was personality. Right. So um, these people seem to be a little bit more neurotic in their personality traits. So they were, um, in other words, warriors, um, as in their whole life probably. They've worried about things. So they're worried about probably when, when they had children, when the children were little, um, worried about them and then worried about other things when they, when they got older. Um, and it's just part of them. It's their personality. And then if we looked at the other group, so the the happy people, um, so we actually originally thought that they were risk takers, so that we those would be the the old men that we typically would categorize as risk takers, as in that they're still cleaning the gutter on a very unstable ladder, and um, you know. But that was not the case. So it was twenty percent of the people, and these people were actually very sensible in not taking risks. So they were very well aware of their risk, um, but they were not concerned about it. So they it didn't stop them from doing things. And that is really the way to get older. So these, we, we actually renamed them from risk takers to Stoics or Aussie battlers. <laughs> Um, because that is really, it's just don't worry about it. Um, just keep going and stay active. And that is the way to, to minimize your risk. Again, I think this is a really good way that you've broken this down. And, and just to summarize it, we've got the, those that have tested from a physiological sense to have a low risk. Um, those who in that group believe they have a low risk, you've called the vigorous group. Those who physiologically have been tested to have a low risk but have a fear or a poor perception um, of falling, you've called the anxious group, and that's I think you said that was 10%. And on the yep. other side, we've got those who physiologically test um, uh, like they have a higher risk, and they are made up of the, the stoic ones who, like you said, the Aussie battlers who just go out there and just do everything anyway, or the <laughs> other, and the, that's 20%. And then the aware group who physiologically have a risk and they know they've got a risk and behave as though they've got a risk. So yeah. I guess we've got 30% or a third of the people who um, perceive themselves differently to what they actually physically test. How does that then flow on uh, in terms of their falls risk? Is it, is it good, for example, to be stoic and, and continue to do things even though the balance isn't there? Or are these people putting themselves at, at greater risk of fall? Well, no, so all we saw is that so the, 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 the vigorous people, they fell less, um, which is, you know, to be expected. So about 10% of those people fell. And the, the people who were frailer and aware of it, um, it was, yeah, about 45%. So close to half of those people actually had um, at least one fall in the follow-up year um, or, or more, um, of which quite a few injuries falls. So, you know, these people were right in there. Um, guess of their full risk but the most interesting that we saw was that those um, anxious people so it's only 10% but you know out of it's it's a it's there was a study in 500 people so it was a significant number of people um, they fell as much as the frail people even though they had no physiological reason whatsoever 
Um, so they also about half of them fell in the in the year following um, following them up, and quite a few injuries falls as well. And so we this this was and and then the other end. Um, so the the happy people, the Stoics, they they fell less. So they were about thirty percent. So it's definitely the way to go. Um, so but we actually we did a little experiment. Um, after after finding out those results and just um, to really get a good understanding of what was going on. And what we did is we actually, we selected um, blindly uh, an equal number of people from each of those groups. Um, so we had about 10 to 15 people um, from each group that we exposed to an experiment. And the experiment was um, so that we asked people to walk on a, on a height, on a platform of about 60 centimeters high. So it wasn't super high, but high enough if you would misstep that you, you know, you, you fall and you possibly hurt yourself. Um, and so we, we asked people of each of those groups to, to walk on the floor just a normal situation um, and then to also walk on that height and we randomized those conditions so to have it as you know as as unbiased uh, as possible um, and even though I, did, I conducted the experiment at the time and I did not know who was in which group because I was blinded to it but I could visually see what they were doing to themselves so the people who were fearful of falling actually almost halved their, um, their, 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 their speed, their gait speed, so their walking speed. And as a result of doing that, um, they became really unstable. Like you could just see them wobbling because of, of, what, they, of what they tried to do to be more careful. Um, so they, um, so, and we, we did the analysis, so we had people walking on, um, on a gait right mat, so we had all those... Um, all the qualitative and, and quantitative gate measures as well. And we could really see well, that's what happened. So because people dropped down to a gate speed that was way below what was comfortable for them, they actually introduced a fall risk at that moment in time. So if, if people do that because of a concern about falling in real life as well, like for example, when they're walking um, in in a busy marketplace or, or in a train station, um, then that in itself could just be a risk of falling because they're just making themselves unstable and that we would not be able to measure with their actual abilities in a lab when it's safe. That's really interesting. I mean, it's clear from your study there that um, simply having that fear, they'll put in place strategies to prevent them falling out of the fear but those strategies actually increase their risk rather than decreasing their risk. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, exactly. It reminds me of the Henry Ford quote. I think it goes something like, uh, if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. So, uh, yeah, the, the <laughs> that's right. Yeah, but it is, it's as you say, like, it's, it's so applicable on so many situations. And I think everyone can think of a circumstance where you did that to yourself as well. Like, and um, I think nearly everyone, when you're learning to drive, for example, you take, you're doing so many silly things, you know, just because you're concerned sometimes in, in, a, in a situation. So, uh, and when you become a little bit more confident and, and have a lot more practice of driving hours in you, you, you don't make those silly mistakes anymore and you, you don't have that same risk. So it's, it's applicable on so many, so many uh, circumstances throughout life. So in your studies, you go to, uh, or you use a 
whole number of uh, physiological tests, uh, questionnaires, and a whole different range of um, you know, quite impressive but exhaustive testing to measure falls risk. If we take it back and, and strip it back to what might be really useful for a practitioner in a day-to-day -day basis to assess and manage their falls risk patients, what are some of the, the key little you know, snippets you might have for history, physiological tests and, and outcome measures that a practitioner might be able to use day in, day out in their office? Yeah, so there is there are quite a few measures that are out there that have been tested and have been validated. Um, you know, and it's um, um, I, I do think it is very important to cross those three domains of physical um and cognitive as well as psychological. Um, so when you when you say about you know history, it just kind of um, quite um, a thought about you know a, a, a common thing that is often asked in clinical practices is history of falls, and I know that's probably not what you're what you're referring to necessarily in itself, but um, you know it's 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 the most common screening tool. But if we if we use only that as a screening tool to identify people who are at risk of falling, we're actually catching them quite late in the process because they've already had a fall. Um, so we really, like, even though it is important, especially if a person has fallen in the past, like the risk of them falling again is a lot greater. Um, so it is definitely important, but it can't be the only thing. Um, so for as physiological tests go, um, I think a balance test um, is, is quite important. So um, a very good, very easy balance test could be to actually ask a person to stand on one leg. Um, so that can be done very quickly. And um, so a general rule often um, that is often held to is that if a person can't stand on one leg um, for five seconds, their risk of falling is, is quite high. So a person should be able to stand on one leg for at least 10 seconds. Um, so that's a very basic um, test. Another test that you could do is something like the time-up-and-go test, which is where you ask a person to stand up from a chair, um, walk three metres, turn around and come back again and do that as quickly as possible but safely. Um, so, And then there's um, rules around how many seconds it takes a person as to whether um, they're at um, an increased risk of falling. And um, what you could do as well is to ask to add a dual task to it, so to actually ask them a question, for example, counting back by threes from a number um, between 90 and 100. Um, so, and that, yeah, so that becomes then a little bit more challenging um, for the brain. And then you can see how much they slow down. So some people are not able to do that together. There's actually this famous study um, that was done um, it, quite a little while ago, but it really started this whole new series of research where we actually looked at the brain a little bit more closely in relation to falls. There was this uh, practitioner in, um, in Sweden. Um, and she she noticed that if when she got her patients from um, from waiting room, um, and if she asked them a question, just basically, you know, how are you going? Some people actually stopped 
Um, and um, so and the, the paper is actually called that. So stop walking and talking. Um, so and she she just um, she did a very basic study with her own patients, essentially, where she's just grouped people uh, based on whether they stopped walking when they were talking or they didn't. And so the people who stopped walking um, were at increased risk of falling. So they're, they're, they 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 fell a lot more. So something um, like that is, is is something that you can could easily um, do in your clinical practice and, and just kind of add it to um, to to how you how you do uh, how you do things um, and um, so then another component definitely is um, is to to add a question on concern about falling um, so how how they feel their balances because to me this is one key thing um, if they because it you kind of based on our study it's it's bad either way so even so if they are correct we need to do something about it so if if their balance is bad and and, and they say it's bad we need to give them some balance training but if they say their balance is bad and we can't really see that too we need to also address it in a different way so I think those three components are very important so you're, you've done your physical, cognitive, and psychological test with a the patient. They're sitting there in front of you. We know this person needs help with uh, balance. What interventions uh, are we going to look at, both you know, either in, pra- in the uh, practice setting or, or as far as a home exercise type of program might be? So what we know from the literature is that um, uh, there is one intervention that really works uh, to prevent falls in older people, and that is exercise. not just any exercise, it has to be um, uh, balanced exercises and, and the type of exercises that are quite challenging to the individual, um, so in a tailored fashion. Um, and it's also important, obviously, to get the right dose so um, so that people do it quite frequently for a reasonable amount of time. So the general um, recommendation would be for a person to do two to three hours a week for a minimum period of about six months. Um, of these highly challenging exercises. Um, so if you can do these in, in different ways, so you can do this as a, as a group, um, in, a, in a group setting. So for example, exercise classes such as uh, Tai Chi have quite a bit of evidence behind them because they're really typically quite challenging balance exercises. Um, or you can do them um, at home as well. So there are a few home-based exercise programs that um, have been um, proven to work. Um, the main challenge really is um, for exercises is for people to keep doing it. So that, that's the advantage of having it as a group setting is where you actually have a little bit of a social control. Though if, if you didn't come to a, a class for a few weeks, someone might pull you up on that. Um, while if you do it at home, um, you only have to kind of justify it to yourself. Um, so, but yeah, so so that's uh, the main, that's the key thing. And uh, so the good thing about exercise is that it improves your balance. Um, so we know that no matter what age you are, you can improve your balance and your strength. Um, all the all those physical risk factors of falls. Um, but what we also know is that exercise is good for your brain as well. It's actually becoming such a central component um, for um, for other conditions as well. Like we've heard it in the media um, for uh, for cancer survivor patients as well, um, just a few months ago. Uh, but also in relation to dementia, um, where exercise is really becoming a featured uh, component. 
Um, and um, so it's it's very good for your brain. And um, and then another thing is that, as we know as well, if you're active, uh, if you go out and about, um, you feel more help, happy in yourself. And it's actually also a proven um, intervention for, for depression. So um, exercise is the way to go. We have to choose one. Well, I know you'll be going into all these sorts of uh, strategies, both in terms of um, checking for risk and managing these sorts of patients in a lot more detail at the conference in Hobart. Um, I'm sure you'll be speaking about your um, uh, your tablet-based program, Standing Tall, that I understand is uh, in research at the moment, but won't that study won't be quite finished uh, in October. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So uh, I've read your, your study protocol and I think we had a little chat just before we um, recorded this uh, interview uh, saying it was a bit like um, binge watching a, a Game of Thrones season then having to wait you know, six months before the, uh, the next, you could watch the next episode because it, uh, the, what you're doing there with your standing uh, tall app look, sounds absolutely fantastic and I'll be really, really excited to um, look at that more uh, once that study is finished. Thanks, Anthony. Yeah, that, like, that's the, the driver for that study really is what I was saying is that we, we have to get people to do exercises and um, group exercises is, is not for everyone. So um, And many people prefer actually the home-based programs. Um, and then so to do social programs, uh, different social programs rather than just exercise. Um, so and that is really what drove us to to create this app is where we actually um, can deliver the tailored balance highly challenging balance program so it's fully tailored to the individual um, in their own home so they can do it at their own time you know as long as they get their two hours a week and it's fine they can split it up into 10 minute sessions if they want to a day or just get it all over and done with in a, over over two or three days um so so it's it's entirely up to the individual and that is the thing that is really making it quite nice and convenient and um yes yeah, so as, as you said um so we're, we're running the study at the moment and we're very very close to the finish so uh, we're all a bit anxious about finding out the results really um after after all those years of of hard work so we've got 510 people in the study um, and um, about half of them um, followed the intervention, half of them didn't. Um, and so we, we followed people up for actual falls over 12 months. Um, and um, so people did their exercises for, for two hours a week. And so we, we had a bit of a look at adherence um, a little while ago uh, for the first six months when people were in the study for six months. And could see something that we've actually never seen before is that um, we've got a mean, an average adherence of 90 minutes a week across our intervention sample, which is something that we've never seen before. Like mostly we're lucky to get 30 minutes out of people. Um, so it seems that we've got something that people like to do. So um, now we can only hope that we also produce falls. But um, yeah, as, as, as we talked about before, it will be at least another two months by the time we, we can look at that data. Well, I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? It's one thing to say that exercise is important for, um, uh, for, for falls risk, but people have to do the exercises. So if you've got uh, using technology that is uh, engaging people and making them uh, happy and willing to do these on a regular basis, well, then that's uh, you're halfway there. And I'm sure 
people like myself are going to be very, very interested uh, in using that kind of technology. Um, thank you, Kim, so much for your for your time today. I really appreciate. It. I understand you. You know, you're very busy in your um, research and work life, but um, it's been great talking with you today. Thanks, Anthony. You're welcome. So for all the listeners out there, don't forget to register for the ACA conference if you want to hear more uh, from Kim and many other great speakers. That's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence and look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast.